This weekend, we continue our year-long study of the New Testament book of Acts. And thus far in our study, we have seen that one of the recurring symbols of the Holy Spirit and His work is fire. Well, today we're going to see fire once again as a symbol of the Holy Spirit's work, but not in the usual sense. Our text comes from Acts chapter 19, verses 18 through 20. And it recounts some exciting developments in the first century city of Ephesus, which was known as one of the capitals of occult practice and magic. But God was building his kingdom there. And so we read, many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. Notice these are believers. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Today, as we unpack that text, I want to talk to you about relentless devotion, and specifically the relentless devotion of the Holy Spirit to your spiritual welfare. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, in these coming moments, I will need the anointing of your Spirit if I'm going to preach and teach prophetically and faithfully. And we'll all need the empowering of the Spirit to understand, to see how the text touches us, and to implement the truth that you lay upon our heart. We don't want to be just hearers of your word. We want to be doers of the word. We want to see it woven into the fabric of our life. So, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us. Do what only you can do in your relentless devotion to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. And as we study God's word together today, may the Lord be with you. Last weekend, I suggested that one of the frequently overlooked and underappreciated themes of the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit's relentless campaign against prejudice in the hearts of Jesus' followers. And as we saw, that campaign wasn't achieved overnight. Spiritual growth rarely happens overnight, even if you send in your best gift to some ministry. The Spirit started small, and the Spirit took His time. The Spirit showed patience. But as the early church was about to discover, while the Holy Spirit shows great patience with us as we grow, He shows absolutely no patience with our sin. His unwavering devotion to God's agenda in us and to our spiritual warfare won't allow compromise with our sin. His war against it is relentless. He won't hear of compromise. Because the Spirit understands that compromise with sin is like compromise with cancer. It only allows it to spread. So the Spirit waged war 
against deep-seated prejudice and refuse all compromise and refuse to negotiate any truces. He pressed forward relentlessly until he had achieved total surrender, until the earliest Jewish believers were fully ready to accept as brothers and sisters redeemed Samaritans and redeemed Gentiles even if they came from the ranks of Rome. Now, to appreciate the significance of that, think of a redeemed Jewish man or woman who survived Auschwitz and the Holocaust loving a redeemed former Nazi guard who inflicted great suffering upon their families. And that would be an apt comparison to a first century Jewish believer loving redeemed Romans. Or think of Dr. John Perkins who spoke here years ago. An African American, as a boy, John watched as Klansmen murdered his brother before his eyes. But years later, John was able to love and accept as a brother a redeemed former white supremacist because he had found Jesus. Now, the fact that the Holy Spirit refuses compromise hardly stops us from seeking it. It's what we do. We come by it naturally. We like to hold on to a mix of the old and the new because it, feel, it feels like we still have some control of the agenda. The unflattering truth is we often want God's blessings on our terms. But there's a problem with that. If God is who he says he is, compromising his terms compromises our blessings. I say that because everything the Holy Spirit is up to in your heart has its foundation in God's perfect love and God's perfect wisdom. And in light of that, compromise makes no sense whatsoever. Because when you seek compromise with that which is perfect, it means you're going to settle for something less not something more. And while you may be okay with that, the Holy Spirit is not. His faithfulness will not yield to our foolishness or to our fears. Because the Holy Spirit understands something that we're slow to recognize and quick to forget. And that's a deadly combination. Slow to recognize, quick to forget. He understands that we may compromise with sin, but sin will never compromise with us. If our devotion doesn't overrule our compromise, our compromise will eventually overrule our devotion. You may think you can say to a sin this far and no further, but you'll never pull that off. And sin will never accept that. Sin always wants total control. That's the nature of it. Now, the story we're looking at today illustrates these realities. And it highlights another unannounced but very important theme in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit's relentless campaign against deep-seated idolatry. 
Idolatry is the habit of attaching our deepest hopes and our deepest loyalties to someone or something other than God. Or we could say to someone or something in addition to God. Before conversion, the impulse to idolatry is a relentless addiction. It's what unbelievers do. They can't help themselves. The unbelieving mind manufactures idols continually, and unbelieving hearts and hands pursue them. But after conversion, by God's grace, we've been set free. We're no longer obligated to obey those old addictive impulses. But, but, we are obligated to resist them. They don't set the agenda anymore, but they haven't gone into retirement. That's why John, in the little epistle near the end of the New Testament that we call 1 John, writing to Christians, said, My little children, keep yourself from idols. John wouldn't have said that if it wasn't necessary. Keep yourself from idols. Now, idols come in a wide variety of flavors. The obvious ones are statues before which people bow and to which they offer sacrifices, but the really powerful ones are invisible and subtle. And no matter what their flavor, once they're in place, they never relinquish their hold voluntarily, never relinquish it immediately, and never relinquish it easily. And they aren't always seen as evil. Some idols come dressed in the clothing of just being practical, just being logical, just doing what is necessary. And some of the most subtle ones come dressed up like Christian characteristics. I've often seen idols labeled Christian. And when an idol feels it's being threatened and it's losing its hold, it will always seek compromise. And I want to consider how the relentless Holy Spirit exposed and dealt with the idols in Ephesus. Upon arriving in that city, Paul, according to his custom, went first to his Jewish countrymen. So he taught in the local Jewish synagogue. But the people there didn't particularly care for the message of Messiah, and so things turned ugly rather quickly. There's nothing new under the sun. Some of Paul's opponents spread fake news on social media. They accused him of many ugly things. And as a result, he was driven out of the synagogue, and he was forced to find another venue for his preaching and teaching. And so he set up shop in the school of the philosopher Tyrannus. But space was only available there in the middle of the day, from 11 a.m. till 3 in the afternoon. Because the afternoon heat in Ephesus was so oppressive, so intense, that nobody attempted to work between 11 and 3. They all went home, ate a good lunch, and took a nap. And in many hot climates today, people still do that. 
places I have visited in Asia, places I visited in Africa, everything shuts down in the middle of the day. So all of the philosopher's students went home and Paul's students moved in. But that meant they were working the morning shift at their job, spending four hours in intense heat studying and then going back for the afternoon shift at their job while everybody else napped and ate lunch. It was commonly said in those days that you would find more people asleep in Ephesus at one in the afternoon than you would at one in the morning. And they did that because they were hungry for God's truth. As I read their story, it put me in mind of some Alliance believers in Cuba a number of years ago. Under Castro's regime, they couldn't build places of worship, and they weren't permitted together for worship save for 5 a.m. on Sunday morning. And so these Alliance believers met faithfully every Sunday morning at 5 a.m. in the only place where the government would leave them alone, a pigsty. Imagine asking American Christians <laughs> to worship at 5 a.m. Some of you would show up at 5 p.m. <laughs> 5 a.m. in a pigsty. But that's what they did. And our churches in Cuba grew and grew and grew. See, the Ephesian believers, like those believers in Cuba, weren't selfish religious consumers looking for the most comfortable and convenient deal in town. They didn't value convenience above devotion. Even though they were new to the kingdom, they already understood that difficulty is often the price of devotion, while convenience is usually the death of devotion. When God's people have it too easy for too long, they almost inevitably become spiritually soft and selfish and whiny and demanding. And I could go on and on, but it would be ugly. Now, Paul's students didn't gather in that sweltering heat to hear feel-good stories. They didn't gather together in that heat to hear Paul spill his emotional guts about his journey. They assembled to learn truth. They assembled so that Paul could teach them what we call doctrine, the systematic introduction of God's truth about God, about us, about the cross, about the resurrection, about the future, about the Holy Spirit, about temptation, about prayer, about forgiveness, about grace, about judgment, about mercy. They assembled to learn Christian doctrine. And I'm stressing that because it's hip nowadays to scrap doctrinal teaching in favor of inspirational stories and sharing your own journey. Well, friends, I've had a journey, you've had a journey, but the thing that will help you on your journey is not my journey. <laughs> the thing that will help you on your journey is knowledge of God's roadmap. When I dial up my GPS, I don't want it to play music so I feel good, I want it to give me directions. 
And this trend is fueled by the popular accusation. You've maybe heard this. Doctrine divides people, but love unites them. Makes for a great bumper sticker, but it's garbage. It's not fair to love, and it's not fair to doctrine, and it's not fair to anybody who believes that. Because the reality is, doctrine, teaching of God's truth, isn't the enemy of love. It defines love, it inspires love, and it informs love. How does it inspire love? Scripture tells us we love because Christ first loved us. And that declaration is doctrine. Christ first loved us. It informs us because Jesus himself said, if you really love God, if you really love me, you'll obey my commandments. And that's doctrine. You see, those words from Jesus make something very clear. Love has clear boundaries. Anything outside is unloving. Everything inside is loving. Love has clear boundaries. When you love God, there are things you will not do, places you will not go, things you will not say. When you love your neighbor as yourself, there are things you will not do, places you will not go, things you will not say. Doctrine shows us the boundaries of love. Without boundaries, the concept of love is nebulous and meaningless, and the word loses content, or worse, the definition lies in the eye of the beholder. And we don't tend to define love very well. I said in the last service, a a lot of men use the word love this way. If you love me you'll let me. I like the old expression, most guys don't like used furniture, but they love being in the antiquing business. If you love me, you'll let me. Well, that's not love, that's lust. Love is willing to wait, lust is not willing to wait. Love will wait to give, Lust refuses to wait to get. So you see, when we define love, it usually comes out like this. If you love me, you'll do what I ask. You'll give me what I want. And you'll let me run the show. So love needs to be defined. The boundaries need to be set. So as Paul taught doctrine to these new believers, they recognized we have violated the boundaries of God's love. Doctrine and the relentless work of the Holy Spirit brought that recognition. They were still harboring idols. You see, in Ephesus, people paid a great, great price for occult books, magic books, and they treasured them. And it was thought that simply having them in your home would bring you good fortune, but they would consult them for incantations and formulas to bring blessing at various points in their lives. And these brand new believers were supplementing their confidence in God with confidence in those magic books that they had learned to value from childhood. So they confessed Jesus as Messiah, but held on to their books of magic. So their confidence was divided, God and. 
and their magic books were idols. Because when you trust in God and, whatever follows the word and is an idol. There is no God and. It's God alone. In response to the relentless devoted promptings of the Holy Spirit and doctrine. They recognized their idolatry. They disclosed it voluntarily. They confessed it publicly. And then they gathered together all their books. And I love this little phrase. It's, it's a case of where it's good to get inside Scripture and walk around. It said, they counted the price of them. They totaled up what they had spent on these books. And it's a reminder that you always pay a price for idolatry. Idolatry is never an investment that brings a good return. You just pay and lose. Where holiness is an investment in a better future. And God always has a great rate of return. Idols return nothing. So they counted up the price. And then they burnt the books. And since their pieces of silver then were roughly equivalent to $100 U.S. today, this was a $5 million bonfire. $5 million! Think of some of the conversations that preceded that, honey. You know, we were going to take that trip to Quasimel by selling some of our books. But I can't, in good conscience, sell books to our neighbors and have them led into idolatry. How can I do that? So we're going to be burning them. We won't be going to Cozumel. Got to spend a weekend in Catanning instead. <laughs> Five million dollar bonfire. It was a once for all, no going back, decisive act. Because the Holy Spirit had convinced them that while maturity takes time, Faithfulness must be immediate. Let me say that again. Maturity takes time, but faithfulness must be immediate. A devoted husband will spend all of his life working at being a more Christ-like husband. He can grow in his capacity to carry out that role, but he can't grow in his faithfulness. He either is or he isn't. If a wife says to her husband, honey, are you faithful? And he says, generally. <laughs> or he says, most of the time. Or he says, increasingly. Or, I'm getting there slowly. That doesn't fly, does it? No, because he's admitted He's unfaithful. Okay. Takes a while to mature. In fact, you'll still be growing when Jesus returns. But you don't grow into faithfulness. You either are or you aren't. 
That's why Jesus said you can't serve two masters. And yet every day we attempt to prove him wrong. We tell ourselves we can hold on to some of our old loves, our love of possessions or of celebrity or of power or any of the popular idols of America, unprincipled sexuality. We can hold on to those things and hold on to our love for God. We can have both. Or we tell ourselves we can have confidence in God and confidence in things other than God, like the American economy, the American military, or our particular political persuasion. And I mention that because evidence seems to indicate that that latter political persuasion is especially prevalent. Here's why I say that. When an American presidential election brings forth either unfounded celebration or unfounded resignation and disappointment, in the hearts of men and women who confess Jesus is Lord of all creation, holds all things together by the word of his power, people who believe their citizenship is in heaven, who believe that God will never leave them or forsake them, who believe that their eternal destiny is assured, who are confident that nothing will separate them from God's love, who believe he can cause all things to work together for their ultimate good and who claim their hope is in God and God alone when people like that either celebrate or go into a fit of depression over the outcome of an American election, you can be sure there are some magic books still in our nightstands. When following an American presidential election, men and women who believe we are commanded to love God, love our neighbor as ourselves, and even love our enemies, engage in bitterness, anger, strife, accusations, suspicions, infighting, knee-jerk judgments, sweeping generalizations, Unchecked assumptions, name-calling, broken relationships, decrying somebody's salvation, and dividing the body of Christ, even though God said, he who destroys the body, I will destroy. When Christians do that, you can be sure there are magic books still up in the attic. When highly visible preachers of the gospel assert that a mere human being represents our nation's last hope of revival, or assert that a particular human being assures there'll never be revival, doesn't matter which side of the equation you're on, you can be sure that there are magic books tucked away in our souls. Revival does not depend upon fallen human beings. See, if this recent election and all the ugliness that it has flushed out of the shadows tells us anything, it tells the American church that we have magic books in our closets that need to be taken to the fire because we've already paid too stiff a price for them and they need to be taken once and for all, not one page at a time. 
See, there's something about a $5 million book burning that gets people's attention. This got on social media right away. And Luke tells us in the aftermath, the word of God grew mightily and prevailed. What does that mean? Increasing numbers of people heard the gospel, believed the gospel, experienced the power of Christ, and were conquered by God's love. And in the midst of a place known as the capital of occultism, God established one of the most dynamic churches of the first century. And that outcome reminds us that when Jesus' followers abandon their idols, sinners are more likely to abandon theirs. It's easy to point at all the idols of American culture and say those things are ruining our nation. And they are. And none of them should surprise us if you've read prophetic scripture. But it's another thing to say, and too many of those are found within our own ranks. So how can we convert the world if we don't contradict it? If we look just like it? only with a little bit of spiritual tint. That's why scripture says judgment must begin in the household of God. When Christians get rid of their idols, the light of Christ shines more brightly through us and unbelievers will get rid of theirs. So let me leave you with a question. Has the Holy Spirit been talking to you about some of your magic books? Now, you can always tell when the Holy Spirit is talking to you about an idol. It hurts. And your initial response will be to get defensive and ticked off. Because the Holy Spirit's tampering with your idol. He's tampering with your security. He's tampering with your hopes. He's tampering with your sense of well-being. He's tampering with your sense of being in control. And we don't like that. But if the Holy Spirit is touching you at some point and it hurts, remember the Holy Spirit will say, uh, it's not supposed to hurt there. I had to have an emergency appendectomy when I was in seminary. Uh, my, boy, I had a hot one. They took me straight up to the operating theater. But a very skilled surgeon simply walked over to my gurney and touched me lightly, and I jumped, and he said, not supposed to hurt there. Let's get to the operating room. And if this message, if God's truth has touched you somewhere and you don't like that, probably an idol. And that leaves you with a choice. Get ticked at God and argue with him. Or understand nobody loves you more than he does and cooperate with him. So if God's spoken to you about any idol, it can even be another person. It can be your spouse. If you expect them to bring joy into your life instead of God, you're asking them to be God. They can't pull it off. You've got to get disillusioned with them, and destruction is on the way. That's idolatry to expect any human being can take the place of God in your life. Some of you maybe have made idols of your children. You're living vicariously through them. You want them to bring the significance you never found. That's foolish. That's idolatry. If God has spoken to you, remember this. You can't abandon idols on the installment plan any more than you can become faithful a little bit at a time by decreasing your affairs. It won't work. Bring them to the fire. 
Don't wrap them in asbestos ahead of time. Don't tie a rope to them so you can pull them back later. Surrender to the heart that loves you more than you love yourself and to his relentless devotion. My little children, John said, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray together. Father, it's been said that good teaching and preaching comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. Lord, I pray today's teaching would do both because when we burn our idols, we find joy. And until we do, we find disappointment. Lord, teach us how to respond to the relentless devotion of the Spirit and how to count the cost and then burn our idols in Jesus' name. Amen.